Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. And now, please welcome Willem Dafoe. Nosferatu and, and the, this uh, amazing and obscure actor named Max Schreck, who apparently that was his real name, and Schreck is the German word for terror, I guess. But, um, and he worked, I guess like you, worked in theater and sort of went between film and theater. But what did you sort of know about him and about Nosferatu that got you interested in the project? Well, I didn't know so much about him, and I didn't really feel the need to know so much about him because the Max Schreck that... I had to deal with in uh, this film really was the invention of Stephen Katz's conceit. Mm -hmm. Of course, I got to know Nosferatu quite well because it was necessary to not only to use as a a, a model to start from, but also I knew we were going to be cross-cutting in a few places. So I had to be really familiar with um, certain sections because we were going to actually be replicating them. Mm Did you not see this film until it was finished? I mean, it was your first. Yeah, I didn't. So I, it was your the, first all I did it, like? I looked at the initial te- uh, the tests for the makeup, but mm-hmm. that was about it. Mm-hmm. And what, but what was your reaction? I mean, to it when you first. Yeah, no, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I really can't. Um, as always, you know, as always, it's a little bit. You're watching and you're thinking, oh, so they use that shot, or they, or. And, and also, it's like a home movie. You have all associate, all these associations to what was going on at the time. And there's all... It's a comparison game. Um, you know, oh, I thought that scene was going to be more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, why are they staying on him so long? <laughs> or, you know, those kind of things. Your head's going like that. And then other things will enter into it, too, like... Oh God, that was a fun day. It was really a beautiful day. Oh, I miss Luxembourg. You know that. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. So I don't ever really see it like an audience sees it. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Now this is um, a, a film that's obviously about acting in a lot of ways, and it's sort of—I mean, the, the sort of joke of the movie is that this is like the ultimate method actor. And I'm just wondering, sort of, what, what about this aspect of the script? Um, you sort of took seriously or, or attracted you? to the project? Well, no. There's many things that attracted me, but that aspect of the script, uh, that's where a lot of the humor came from, and I think there's something very sweet about Max, who's such a substantial and terrifying character. Once he's put in the context of make as an actor in a movie, he gets, you know, it's kind of fish out of the water humor. He's He's kind of very shy, and he wants to do a good job. He's conscientious, and then once he starts to feel re- relaxed, he starts to get very vain, and then he gets demanding. So it's a recognizable progression. <laughs> so as an actor, you, uh, you appreciate it, and you kind of you hold up the mirror to yourself and have a good laugh. This film was shot in widescreen. And there's some great scenes with you and Malkovich, that, um, almost like tableau setups where the camera goes on for a long time and one of you is in, in the foreground in a very strong shot. And I'm wondering if that style of shooting might help this rhythm build up. It seems like there were longer takes. Well, I think people are st- tending to, 
Except for in really big movies where the movie stars demand close-ups. <laughs> it's true. Um, people, um, people are playing around more with um, longer takes mm-hmm. and either having the cameras dance, dance more or having the performers move around the camera more. Mm-hmm. It's much better because you can hit... You can find your rhythms. The rhythms aren't made by the editor as they are in a lot of movies. And also, you don't have that thing of the close-up, which everybody loves because it gets you close to those people. But I think every time, you know, every time there's a cut somewhere in your head, you fall out, you fall out, you fall out. So when you see something all in one piece, good and bad, mistakes, good parts, accidents, everything... I think you have the opportunity to um, stay with the film better. And what was, the, what was it like on the set? I mean, one of the things to me that's very successful about the film is the tone that it, that it strikes. Because um, it is quite comic, comical, um, but you know, sort of serious at the same time and scary. Um, this is a very low-budget movie in the respect that we had to shoot quite fast. I shot something like 18 days on this. They really just... I did three weeks, like pretty much six days a week. Just They tried to get all my stuff shot um, very quickly. Uh, everybody was there for their own reasons. Nobody got rich. Uh, you know, uh, we never knew what exactly was going to happen in the movie because it's a small movie. So people really want, were there because they wanted to be, which isn't always the case um, in film. I mean, people are there for different reasons. So it was happy in that respect. Mm-hmm. And then we're in the middle of Luxembourg, which is a pretty out-of-time, bucolic place. And all we had is what we were doing, so the focus on what we were doing was very good. And the realities get jumbled, because when you're doing a film about a film within a film, you know, you get a little... (laughs) So, it's fun. I mean, something I've talked about in doing press on the film, but it's this kind of thing that happened that's interesting and plays on your imagination and is fun is... I had, like, three hours of makeup to get into this role and one hour to get out. And basically, since we had a very tight schedule, we were working very long days. I was always the first one in every morning. So I'd go in the trailer, the makeup people would come in, sleepy-eyed, and we'd start work. And by the time we came out of the trailer, everyone else had arrived, and I came out of the trailer completely in Max Shrek drag. And then at the end of the day, we'd wrap, I'd go to my trailer, they'd wrap out, and they were usually gone before I left. So... <laughs> so <laughs> Here you have a movie about the crew never seeing Max out of character. And <laughs> those kinds of um, little imitations of life and life imitating art and art imitating life uh, were happening all the time. And the, the, the physical um, side of it, the, uh, this seems to be an important part um, in a lot of your most memorable roles. That, um, I mean, a lot of the films that we're showing this weekend, I've thought about how demanding the shoots must have been. I mean, The Last Temptation of Christ, which we just saw, and, and Platoon, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've talked in the past about how you're in some ways more 
um, drawn to the physical side of acting than, say, the text or the dialogue? I mean, well, totally well, the text can that. become a physical action mm-hmm. in itself, and as I get older, I'm start, starting to recognize that I, I even feel like sometimes you can find the meaning actually through rhythm. Um, hmm. But I'm always attracted. I, I feel most comfortable with actions. It's the, my approach to performing. Um, it's where I feel happy. That, that it's easy to root things when you have very strong actions and a very strong physical task. So I usually seek out situations that have that element in it because mm-hmm. I trust them <laughs> because I can get much closer to... Um, I'm not so concerned with interpretation. It is what it is, and I value it for what it is, not for the shadow that it casts. So as an actor, actions are always a little juicier for me, a little more deep, deeply felt. How much um, of your preparation here um, came through what, studying the film Nosferatu, actually looking at footage and, and using some of the gestures? And... That was a starting place. Yeah. Um, but uh, the thing about preparing for this movie was I couldn't prepare too much because you don't know how you feel until you get there. And so much of this role was getting in that wardrobe and that makeup. So I could do a few things. I could familiarize myself with the period. I could look at Nosferatu a lot, study it to a degree, but so much of our film is outside of the film, within the film. Mm -hmm. So I learned an accent, which led me to the kind of tone of voice that I wanted. Obviously, I had no model for the voice. Um, But preparation, it was kind of a crash course once I got into the makeup, because the makeup was everything. It it defined and informed everything. Mm -hmm. Now... There are roles throughout, uh, I mean, throughout a career that just that draw an incredible amount of attention. I mean, some roles were, I'm sure there have been films where you might have thought, well, I did a great job and this is going to be a big hit and then it doesn't sort of make the splash. And this is a film that's had this sort of buzz around it ever since it premiered at Cannes. I'm just wondering if you can talk about like that side of it, which is removed from the, the work itself maybe, but... Well, you know, it's... I know... Um... I don't know. Sort of, some, sort of someone else should answer that right. question. Okay. But no, I'll try. I'll try. Because uh, it's you and me up here now. <laughs> Somebody's got to answer the question. Um, I could guess. Yeah, I think... No, actually, it kind of leads me into some... I, I feel like a salesman when I talk about the film too much. But I do think that it, this film, in its best moments, you know, switch hits between being scary and being um, comic, which is quite an achievement. I mean, it's such a hybrid of genres. It's, a, it's very specific, and it's about film. So people that love film are interested in that. And in terms of my character, I think it's always fun, not only for an actor, but also for an audience, to see a real extreme transformation. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I, you know, the film and has benefited from people's attraction to that, mm-hmm. and it is fun. I mean, a film like, say, Light Sleeper, where you're in almost every scene, and it's very, nat- you know, really a naturalistic style. I mean, is that 
is, do you find one more challenging than the other? Or how's, how is it different for you? They're different. Each time the process is different. Yeah. And, and because different things are required of you each time. And I think that's one of the biggest jobs of, as an actor that people don't talk about is you have to really suss out, you have to figure out what is required of you for each project, where to come in, where to lay back, where to make an effort, where to risk, where, don't, where to not push too far, where to invent, where to accept. Those are the things that you really deal with. And each time, it's different. For example, Light Sleeper and this are very different experiences, but they're both very pleasurable experiences. And different things are required of me. Mm -hmm. But they're related because they deal with me and pretending and telling stories and do you in making this film do you have to look at dailies a lot i mean do you need to it's such a it's such an extreme performance i didn't look you at just, dailies you didn't at all no i didn't have any time <laughs> no i didn't i mm -hmm. figure do the math yeah uh 14 hour day slap on four hours of work i mean this cat was hardly sleeping <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very uh it was a long for a short period, it was a very tough shoot. Mm -hmm. But you, but there was a sense that something special was going on on this. On this Always. Saturday. Always. Okay. <laughs> 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 but you got to remember, you put it out there, you do your thing, and then all these little elves come, and they either make it better or they make it worse. So. Well, I won't ask. That's. You. I mean, that's the nature of film. Unless you're sitting on the whole process as an actor, let's face it, uh, in the making of it, it can be very collaborative, but so, many, so much of the actor's job often stops after uh, once that final uh, day of principal photography finishes. Do you need to sort of bring more to it when you're working with a... I mean, a director is really just on one film versus some of the directors... Are, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Um, it also depends how much time you have, uh, you know, how, where you're placed in the film. On some films, I feel a responsibility about making the day. I mean, I almost feel like a director or like an uh, assistant director or something. Sometimes that's part of my responsibility mm -hmm. because if we get too far on behind, I know there will be pressure. When you say making the day... Making the day, you make, you make a schedule... Let's say you've got a 35-day shoot, and then you say, oh, we're going to shoot this scene on this day. We're going to shoot this scene on that day. Well, if on this particular day you're not finishing your work, obviously that work gets pushed over to the next day. And if you keep on falling behind, it starts to compound itself. And before you know it, the pace of how you're working gets very pinched, and then everybody panics. So on a small film... If you're one of the principal actors, sometimes you can really help things along because then you have to decide places where there's always difficulties. So you always have to balance those times where you say, this isn't working, we've got to go back, forget the master that we shot, we've got to redo the scene, if you have the time. If you don't have the time, you've got to balance how to do the best you can. It's a constraint. It's a, it's a, it's a condition. Um, I'm sure people, unless they work in film, aren't aware of this, but you're constantly making those kinds of decisions. 
How did we get about on that? I'm we're a little jet lagged. We're talking about how every day is a great day. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> the, I did want to ask you a bit about The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, the press, we sort of forget now. I mean, now we're able to look at the film and sort of see it for what it is, and, mm-hmm. and I think it's held up very well, and you can sort of look at, look at it without all the furor around it, but it was insane at the time. I mean, it was just amazing the amount of controversy and, and coverage it got. I mean, if you can talk a little bit about what that experience was like. The, not Well, being in a film that, that becomes this huge story that's like bigger than the movie itself. Right, well, I, I couldn't do much about it. I could do just what you could do. I could basically read <laughs> if I wanted to. No, I mean, it was like my experience of it. Of course, the reception was very stormy, and I felt bad because I think it's a good movie, and I think um, the debate was not on a very enlightened <laughs> level. Yeah. Yeah. It was political. It was about the religious right trying to find a... Uh, a topic to rally around. Um, so there was lots of misunderstanding, and I think it did hurt the uh, the reception of the movie in the respect that it limited its release, because it was generally embraced by critics, and I think it is a good movie, but the release was totally shut down because of threats to distributors. So that's that's scary. Um, that's bad. <laughs> uh, I can't, you know, to this day, I'm, uh, I'm a little confused about that because it was an emotional, my reaction to it was very emotional. So I'd, I'm not sure I have anything bright to say about it. Only that I knew, I was, I was shocked. Um, I was shocked. There's a, a way that um, you were sort of typecast or sort of defined early in your film career for certain kinds of you know, dark roles or sinister roles. I mean, maybe it was um, the combination of doing The Loveless and the Walter Hill film and The Hunger at the same mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was talk when Platoon came out that we were seeing another, you know, different side, I mean, in the coverage at the time. And I'm just wondering if, what you could say about sort of how that um, the way that people think of you has, ch- has changed um, over the years in, in terms of what types of role, film roles you're offered. Right, well, I've, been, I've always been conscious to keep you know, try to keep uh, people's idea of who I am or my opportunities wide just because part of pleasure of being an actor is doing different kinds of things. I don't necessarily think that's the barometer of what a good actor is, but that's what I enjoy. I enjoy the adventure of taking a walk in all these different shoes. Um, In the beginning, I think when you're starting out, just pragmatically... uh, you're responding to what's available to you, and you're also trying to get your foot in the door. And as a young actor, um, I think if you, if you don't have conventional looks and you're not like a leading man, you tend to be a character actor. And the best character actor roles when you're young are usually bad guys. So that's what I gravitated towards. And then you start to be seen that way and then you have some worry that people are going to think that you are inherently a bad guy. I mean, that your cheekbones are bad, that your nose is bad, that your voice is bad, and they can't think of you uh, for anything but that. So in your choice of projects, you tend to try to 
mix it up and stay away from things that will blindly reinforce that. Basically, you're looking for good roles, and, and I think typecasting really can, well, often only happens when you give over to this idea that you're going to crystallize yourself as a thing mm-hmm. and then plug that thing into different projects. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, the... I'm always struck by the schizophrenia. As an actor, you get two different impulses because Hollywood really encourages you to develop yourself, refine yourself into a persona. It's the stuff that great old Hollywood cinema was made of. Right. To make yourself a thing, and a then, a, right. well, a thing that's recognizable, like right. a product almost, and then look around for projects and stories that will support that, where you can use that persona almost iconographically. And that's a particular way of working, and it can be a good way. It's, it's very successful for some. But still, I'm a little bit in love with doing different kinds of things and bending the material, bending myself to the material rather than bending the material to my sense of self. Because just personally, I get more pleasure out of um, working through uh, someone else's persona. Mm -hmm. Because if I put myself out there, that's not, that's not my interest in performing. Yeah. So does that in some ways... I like to, I like to hide in order to find <laughs> my true nature as opposed to right. present my true nature and because then you start to really right. believe that's you. <laughs> but, does that, that, but that might, by losing yourself in the roles in a certain way, that might make it harder that, to get a lot of roles offered to you then, in a, in a way? Well, it all, I, would, I would only say that if you don't, if you don't make yourself into a thing, mm-hmm. then I find that I'm never the person that they think of first for anything, yeah. <laughs> unless the director has a particular idea. Yeah. Um, because I don't think, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is I don't represent one thing uh, that people can plug into a, a, a formula. Mm-hmm. As I say that, it sounds like I'm flattering myself. <laughs> but that's a conscious effort. How much of what you do in the film is tied um, to, to your theater work? I mean, there's something about the expressionistic quality and the, I mean, it, that seems really related to, you know, some stage performances you've done, like, like the Harry, Harry, Harry Ape, Ape, I guess, yeah, just yeah. to name one. But um, right. anyhow, I just wonder if you could talk about that. Um, so, I think one thing that comes to mind is, obviously, since Max is a vampire, um, we're not dealing with naturalistic behavior. So there's the opportunity to find a gestural language that's not naturalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's more true in the theater. I mean, so much film is bound to naturalism. Not always, but often. Mm-hmm. So we could, we could um, invent... that's a world that could hold a a more expansive, more uh, theatrical, gestural mode. So uh, I suppose I I, I felt freer in that respect, that I didn't have to constantly kind of hold up my, uh, you know, behavior to some sort of model of behavior, because the... uh, the world seemed to hold some uh, some 
just very extreme gesture. One of the funny things that you hear about theater, people, actors who are successful in film but stay in theater, there's almost a sort of um, condescending view of theater, this idea that if you're, there must be something odd about somebody who would continue to work in theater if they're, you know, they can be a movie star. So <laughs> that's sort of the most simple way of putting it. But Well, they, people always assume they say, hey, good, you're still doing theater. Like you really hone work. your craft. Yeah. yeah, like it's charity work. <laughs> but... Uh, the theater is what I came from, and it's what I do. Uh, the joke is, film is like the adjunct, um, but it's just higher profile. But I mean, day in, day out, I'm really addressing myself, most of the time, to the theater more than film. And that's, that's not a placing them in a order, but that's just the way my life is built. Mm-hmm. And you've uh, been one of the few di- um, actors who has resisted directing films. <laughs> so I'm wondering wh- why, how you've managed to avoid that. Um, I feel like I've directed films. <laughs> <laughs> I do, sometimes. Um, I do. But I, I don't think it's my personality. I mean, I like, I like the irresponsibility of being an actor. I like, I like doing stuff. Um, basically, in the crudest... Uh, you know, relationship, the director and the actor discuss something or they make a plan and then the director goes over there and the actor does it. I like the doing. Mm-hmm. Also, the director has to have some sort of uh, objectivity, uh, some sort of overview, and yet need feel compelled to tell a particular kind of story. I like to make things subjective and I like not to be responsible for the story because once I'm responsible, I mean, ultimately, I am in the doing right. uh, the director's story. But mm-hmm. by removing it one time, I find it doesn't complete, my, complete, complete itself immediately. I can still work from a place of not knowing and a place of curiosity. It's like if I'm doing his story, that frees me up. If I'm doing my story... I'm too aware of um, certain things that it's doing for me. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes, it becomes a, I, I just feel freer um, as an actor. A director, besides directors have to do, <laughs> they got to really like to deal with groups of people mm-hmm. and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, they like to be the general, most of them. Mm-hmm. I do have to ask you about David Lynch uh, because there was a story that you, in rehearsal, were uh, just sort of for fooling around, were, started singing your lines. During a camera rehearsal. During a camera rehearsal, and I'll let you tell that. We were shooting a scene, and in this, we were setting up a camera, and it was kind of a, a complicated camera move. So the actors had to show the camera many times what they were intending to do as far as blocking and basically where they were going to be so they could get focus and know where the camera was. And just so we didn't play the scene t- to kill it, and, but just to give them enough of the scene, we had to play the scene in some fashion. So I started singing my lines in a sing-songy way, you know, making little uh, <laughs> songs up with my dialogue, which was a thing of just staying away from getting the dialogue stale in my head. And David Lynch said, yeah, Willem, do that. And the cool thing was there was nothing in what was going on that said I couldn't. 
And it was just a lesson about sometimes you put, you put um, restrictions on yourself of what will fit into the world. And it's very exciting when a director gives you a setup that's flexible enough that you can field other than normal impulses. <laughs> and, and that was a wonderful uh, example of a director making you realize that fact that, that sometimes you worry too much about what's going to be real. <laughs> okay, well, let's... Um... I'll open it up to the audience now. After you get the script and before you start shooting, do you work on your character on your own or does the director talk to you about what he, what he or she is looking for or where the character comes from, what his background is, or is that left up to you? Okay, so of course, it's different each time. Um, but this notion that you talk to the director is... Uh, I don't know. It, 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 it varies each time. It dep- there's too many variables. There's no... There's no real pattern. I feel like, um, you know, because some, some directors will give you a setup and leave you alone, and they want to see what you do. And others are very specific, and then you fit yourself into their ideas. So it really depends. I mean, some, some, one director will sit down and say, what do, what do you want to wear? I mean, what do you think of this character? What, what kind of clothes does he wear? And other directors will say, Look, I want him to wear a black suit with a bolo tie and have these funky teeth and cowboy boots. So it, it, really, it really varies. The funny part is, even when I finish a movie, I don't know who the character is. Um, I really don't. Uh, the movie becomes a record of pretending in a certain situation, and usually the character is revealed through trying to tell the story and trying to have things happen to you or trying to make things happen. But, you know, the, I can never account for what I do. <laughs> really. Hi. Pleasure to see you. All right. Again, uh, I saw you uh, years ago at uh, SUNY Purchase. Uh, you had a crew cut, and you were sitting on the lawn with a group of actors. I didn't want to bother you, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'll bother you now. <laughs> no, I, I remember this. It was, it was a Polish... Polish? Uh, Polish exactly, yeah. I've got to tell one story <laughs> about this. I went to see these Polish actors. I had worked with them on a film in uh, Poland, just because I kind of love this. Um, and... They came, it was right, Jaruzelski was still in power, but things were changing. Uh, and they came a couple years later to SUNY Purchase to perform, and they were so excited to be in the States, and, they, and, they, and, and we were good friends in Poland, and, and they, they said, let's have a picnic. <laughs> and, and, and I said, great, great. And I went uh, to have this picnic, and they had a, they had a, like a, a thing spread out, and they were all sitting there, and they brought out the food. And it was all Fritos, cheese balls, <laughs> you know, all this stuff that basically I wouldn't eat. <laughs> but to them, because they had so many years of having that be in the hard currency sco- stores as exotic food, as luxury items, they thought this was like caviar and champagne to, <laughs> to them. <laughs> That's a real digression, but I, I always remember that. 
So real one man's meat is another man's poison kind of thing. I saw you on the, um, uh, with Lipton, James Lipton, the actor, yeah. studio, and you, you, you talk about this rhythm to, to um, dialogue. Um, could you give me, and you, and you gave an example of it, which was so cool, but I can't remember. Could, could, you, could you talk just a drop about that? I was doing a show called The Hairy Ape, and the dialogue is basically a rant, and it's written very rhythmically. There's lots of repetition in it. And I, I guess what I was talking about is sometimes you can get the meaning through rhythm, through music, not from literally hearing the words. And I suppose this is related to how you can get the emotion when you watch opera and you don't understand a lick of Italian, <laughs> and it's uh, sung in Italian. It's related to that. But I guess basically, um, yeah, I, I guess that's what it was about, that you can actually, through rhythm, find meaning. And it's not totally based on, you know, cognitive hearing each of the words and hearing each of the sentences. You see the whole picture. This is kind of a question really about Nosferatu, because I'm not familiar with the film per se, but I couldn't help thinking that once in a while you would like crinkle your nose in this movie and it reminded me of a bat. And I just wondered if you had like researched how bats look or if that's how back Shrek did it. I didn't. <laughs> I suppose I could have, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that just comes out of doing it, I think. I think because so much about him is wanting, you know, and him having this deep need. I mean, it, it was somewhere, went back and forth in my mind between, uh, you know, an animal and a horny adolescent. So, uh, <laughs> you know, basically it took a kind of animal shape and part of that sniffing and, you know, trying to get a good smell and, you know, trying to get a good taste. Uh, that's probably where that... No, nose crinkle came from. <laughs> For demanding roles such as uh, the one in this film, what do you what do you do specifically to uh, to stay on for each shot during these these difficult shoots? How do you how do you specifically stay on for the day, week after week? Okay. <laughs> it's my job. I mean, I, I like doing it. I, there's a part of me that loves to pretend. So you get this wonderful setup and. Um, you know, you're supported by all these people, uh, and it's 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 fun. It's a it's a pleasure. I I I never feel, um, and it's always it's nothing. You 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 never can be absolutely sure about anything. It's a it's a fluid thing. It's a thing where it's always a little scary and a little iffy. So. It becomes, it can, if, if you drop out, it becomes real boring. You know, if repression is, you know, is the mother of boredom, right? <laughs> and as long as you stay loose and um, there's lots to receive and lots to do, uh, boredom's not so much an issue. You know, I've been performing ever since I was pretty young, and that's a place where I feel engaged. That's a place where I feel alive and awake and like everything's possible. So whatever you train yourself to do to have that kind of concentration and that kind of um, receptivity 
is, you know, something that you get practice at by doing it. Specifically about Wild and Hard. Okay. Your character was very smarmy and disgusting and kind of an old lech. <laughs> Yet... Yet, what many people would consider highly sexually arousing, and I was wondering if, <laughs> if anybody gave you flack about your ethical decision in that role. No. I I did have some people come up to me and whisper guiltily that they were turned on by that scene with Laura Dern, where I seduce her. And I think, you know, people respond to desire and respond to power and confidence. And, you know, manipulation and seduction can be, even if the particulars are kind of grotesque and politically incorrect, uh, (laughs) this guy knew what he wanted. And he um, uh, chased after it. And then, of course, there's the good joke that when she finally submits, submits, he says, Oh, honey, can't. <laughs> no time. See you later, baby. Two quick questions. Uh, what is your favorite role that you've played? Do you have one? Okay. You have a favorite role and played? also, is there any particular actor or director that you would like to work with that you have not yet worked with? A favorite role? No. Uh, uh, director, there's lots of people that I, I, every time I see a movie that I really like, and I'm not in it, <laughs> I get jealous, and I want to work with the people that made the movie. Um, two ones that come off the, and I also get self-conscious because I mean I, we're pretty safe here, but uh, you know when you do these things in public, it looks like you're fishing. But <laughs> what the hell? Um, I like the Coen Brothers very much. And, in fact, I know them. Uh, and I'd really like to work with them. I've never had the opportunity. And um, also, uh, I would like very much to uh, work with, work with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Because I really... His three movies that I know, I, I like very much. Those are ones that come off the top of my head, but there's many people. And performers, there's many as well. Well, I just first want to say uh, it's nice to see that you're alive and well, because at the end of uh, Fishing with John, supposedly you died of starvation. Uh, I was just curious to know how you, how you got involved with that project, because I think it's a lot of fun. I'm talking about John Lurie. John Lurie. Um, he's a friend of mine. Uh, he was visiting me up in Maine in the summertime and uh, we went mackerel fishing and uh, a friend, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Liz LeCompte, shot us with a little Super 8 and uh, we started talking about the possibilities. I forgot about it. He kept on going with it and developed this idea for Japanese television originally. And um, then we made a little uh, sort of a pilot with Jim Jarmusch and John and uh, then I, I did one of the sequences. It was a TV show that was sort of based on, you know, like these bass fishing shows. <laughs> but for the Where, kind of film channel. But, well, we, you know, he basically said, he called up friends and said, 
where would you like to go? You can go any place in the world, and we've got to go fishing. And the camera would hang out with them uh, on a fishing trip. Of course, they knew nothing about fishing. Um, and my choice was Maine in the middle of winter. We went ice fishing, which was interesting. Was the show scripted at all? No. <laughs> You've seen it. Come on. <laughs> Nobody could call that writing. <laughs> How do you pick the scripts and the roles? It, once again, it varies. But I, I will say that I feel like scripts are sort of overrated <laughs> in the respect that a script always changes in the, in the shooting. And it's so much been held up as the thing to, to base everything on. But I feel much more comfortable with people and the ideas and the adventure elements of it. Um, you know, not in a crass way, but in a good way, uh, like where it shoots, what, why the people need to tell this story. Um, does this story need to be told? Do I relate to it? Isn't, do I know nothing about it? It's always a mixture of things. But I will say, the only thing that's really worth saying, I mean, anybody could say that, but I think what's maybe a little odd about me compared to most people is I've lost a lot of ability to really read a script. Um, I don't trust scripts. I value a great script, and there, when there is a great script, that really uh, is something that you can, uh, you know, that, that can be enough for you to get interested in a project. But that's not normally the hook. It's a, it's a mixture of elements coming together and the proposal for some sort of adventure that, f for personal reasons, I want to take. Related to the question that was just asked, what brought you to Harry Osborne or um, the, the Green Goblin and right. Peter Parker, Spider-Man? Okay. Sam Raimi called me up. He talked me through the whole story. I was in Spain shooting a movie. He took about two hours to tell me the story. I thought, <laughs> how long is this movie going to be? <laughs> But he told it beautifully. He really told it beautifully. And he talked about it in psychological terms, in a way that kind of startled me. And then I saw the script. And I thought, the, what happens to the... If you don't know this, I won't even bother to try to exp explain it, but it's like a, it's a, the Harry Osborne character... He's the alter ego of Harry Osborne is really the Green Goblin. And he's got some interesting things to say. He's got some interesting moral dilemmas. Uh, so it's a big action movie, but it's got a lot of interesting elements about um, morality and how to live your life. And Sam's interest is really finding the real aspect of it, extraordinary things that happen to real people. I believe him, and uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see if we can do that. There's lots of toys, lots of great things to play with, um, but at the same time, uh, there's a real important story to be told. I was just wondering what, uh, what kind of preparation you might have done for Last Temptation. Really? Very little. And it's not because I'm, I, I'm not lazy. 
It's just this was a case where I really knew I, if anything, I didn't want to accumulate experience or accumulate knowledge about something. I wanted to get rid of it. Just by the nature of the role, I wanted to be in a place where I could receive the story, and it's a very reactive role. So I didn't have to initiate a lot of stuff. I had to react. I had to be kind of cleansed of an expectation, cleansed of images of Christ or cleansed of what this had to be or cleansed of what this story was that we were telling. All I did is I read the Bible. I read some, arch- you know, kind of a, not, what do you call it, um, anthropological stuff about the period that Marty gave me um, and read some things about, you know, certain concepts of what are basically Jesus is teaching, some philosophical stuff, but not that much. Um, I mostly read the Bible and uh, tried to breathe and listen <laughs> and uh, be there and not, uh, you know, give over to it. And that was the kind of role that really lent itself well to that for me because that's what it was about. It was about uh, having these things work through you. Is there anything you're experiencing right now in terms of the reaction? I mean, this film has gotten an unusually strong reaction, positive right. reaction for you. So mm. you could just talk about that. Oh, you know, it's good. I, I'm moronically simple-minded about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small film. So, I mean, in terms of its studio clout, so it's nice to see the performances uh, get some attention because that'll certainly help. I'm pragmatic. That'll certainly help with the uh, film getting out there. And I think it's safe to say that the film deserves to get out there. Okay. Well, okay. I want to I, I thank you for coming out for, um, and being with us this afternoon. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.